right, welcome to episode 87 of the Bobbycast. Thanks to Express Pros for sponsoring this. Our guest is Marcus Hummond, who you're a songwriter, you are an artist, an author, a playwright, like a lot of things. <laughs> Confused. And, until I started digging, I was like, wow. Because what I had known you for, and yeah. we'll just kind of broad stroke this sure. at the beginning, was like Bless the Broken Road, working with the Dixie Chicks. Yeah. And I think that's probably what most people know most people for, their biggest, humongous. Yeah. But then once I started going, wow, this dude wrote plays. Yeah, yeah. I did a bunch of that for about the last 10, 12 years. Uh, and um, it is funny because sometimes uh, I find, you know, it's sort of scary as you get older in the business. And fo- instead of people saying like, hey, have you written something great? You know, have you written a new song that you're really, are you working with anybody you really love? They go, hey, you have any new plays? <laughs> and believe it or not, in Nashville, that's not good news. <laughs> but yeah, no, I started, I did start writing after uh, after doing records. I did a couple of records, you know, I uh, did a record on Columbia and then I did a rock record out of London. So when um, you say records, like you yeah. actually pursued a deal, like not a deal, you actually had a deal, like you were going to be an artist. No, I mean, the only reason I was here was that. I didn't come here to write songs for anybody and um, I wanted to, I mean, I had... You know, I had like five record deals signed. You know, five what they used to call development deals, and in, in the in the back in the day, as they say, in the late '80s and into the '90s. Uh, of course, the the whole industry was different; it was much larger. Uh, the wave of the '90s was, you know, there was like it was as you, I mean, it's huge. I mean, and, you know, at one time there were like 27 labels in town. So you come to town to be an artist. Yeah, and uh, from right. well, uh, I was. I was born in D.C. My dad uh, was a foreign service. He was in the foreign service. He worked for a thing called Agency for International Development. So it was the economic development side of the U.S. government, the embassy, uh, State Department rather. And so we, you know, I had a crazy upbringing. I was, we lived in uh, Tanzania uh, when I was little, uh, moved to Nigeria when I was 11 and 12. Uh, we were in the Philippines right when the Marcoses came into power and Ferdinand Marcos came into power in 72 or 3 anyway we were there 3 years and then we went uh, during the Carter administration my dad switched from AID he was a political appointment uh, and he headed up the joint economic commission between the US and Saudi Arabia so we went to live in the most sort of conservative and by that I mean Islamic conservative part the capital of Saudi Arabia Riyadh and um, how old were you living I was 16 I was 16 and then uh, I in fact my oldest sister I have 3 sisters my oldest sister went on to Colgate University in upstate New York, and then they didn't want both of us to go, and it, And I was a 10th grader, and in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, they don't allow expatriate Americans to go to school. They didn't in the 70s anyway. They don't allow you to go to school there. What, what expatriate Americans? What, well, ex, an expatriate, but a, a expatriate would be somebody from another country living in your country, and, and in this case, Americans. You know, there was... Of course, there were, you know, people from everywhere. You know, Saudi Arabia during that time had all this wealth... And, you know, they were bringing groups like, like J-Corps, the Joint Economic Commission my dad headed up, where we were bringing in American know-how and, and education and, you know, really helping out with building, you know, highways. And the Saudis were, you know, trying to use their wealth to, to create development. So that was dad's area. I mean, he'd previously been in what we used to call the third world. Now they don't anymore. They call it the developing world. I wonder, as a 16-year-old living in Saudi Arabia, yeah. it's got to be so much different than a 16-year-old living in the States where you Absolutely, can get yeah. your driver's license. and Yeah, you couldn't could, drive. Yeah, there was none of that. Your women couldn't drive. I mean, in the 70s, 
like just recently, just in fact, I believe it was last week, actually, amazingly, the Saudis um, finally overturned their law and women can drive. But at that time, women could not drive. And I remember there was one woman from the French embassy and she was a really interesting woman and uh, friends with my mom and dad. And she's like, I don't care. You know, <laughs> I am going to I'm going to drive <laughs> almost I can say whatever you want. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, whatever you want. Like I told you before, Jenna Johnson's been here. You can say whatever you want. Yeah, I'll probably be a little different than him, but uh, yeah, no. She so she drove and um, and and she was you know uh, she was arrested, picked up, and they arrested her even though she was working for the French. Absolutely, they got she was out of the country in like 24 hours. I mean, you know, you don't you do not fool around with stuff like that. That is like bye bye French lady and so i admired no, her <laughs> there's no protection like there's no even though she's there and she's supposedly in france well there, there's the protection that she didn't end up in jail you know they they the embassy was able to get in there and say okay like you, diplomatic immunity yeah no that, that didn't happen well then. the only again like i say the diplomatic immunity aspect of that is she didn't have to you know Sit in a in a Saudi prison. Would they have put her in one had she? Well, not been? I, I I you know I don't know. This was a lot of years ago, but I remember that I would imagine that's diplomatic privileges. You get to leave and not come back. You know. Wow. Yeah. So you're 16 year old seeing this. Yeah. Is, is it normal to you, or is it like whoa, whoa? This is scary to me. Yeah. No, it's normal in the sense that it's normal in that I every two years I remember leaving, two or three years. You know, you'd have a post. And then you'd go to another country, you know, and that was just our life until I was 17. And actually, I didn't stay the full two years in Saudi. Um, the first year I tried to take courses at school at home because we didn't want to lose two kids of the four. You know, like Jan flew back to America and, you know, we didn't have cell phones back in those days. Like you, that was a big separation. But she was going to college anyway, but they didn't want a 16 year old. Like the, the kind of families that I grew up with, a lot of them were European and it was not odd at all to send your kid off to boarding school you know at an early age kind of a Harry Potter world right Americans you know we don't do that we don't really do that that much I mean some do in New England you know you have the Andover Choate Groton kind of schools but that, that wasn't our I mean, my parents are Midwestern like they were clannish they were huggers they were like love you know so all about family so we finally decided after taking some courses from the Uni University of Nebraska had these courses they'd send it to folks who are in these kinds of posts around the world you know and i took them and they were just by rote kind of memory stuff and so there was nothing to it so i had to choose a school and the next year i went to italy and so i did go to boarding school when i was 16 turning 17 i went to notre dame international which is a, a private school run by the same folks that run notre dame university and even though i wasn't I'm not Catholic. I went to that school. It's a big, beautiful school, and it's only ten minutes outside of downtown Rome. And um, and so I spent that you know that that two semesters in in Italy. In Italy. Talk me through this, then. Just uh, run me through all the countries that you remember living in up until you're 18 years old. So yeah, so it was just, it was you know the U.S. and then Saudi. I'm sorry. The U.S. until when? Well, I think we moved to Tanzania when I was three, 1963. So do you remember the U.S. then at three? I have no memories at three. No, I don't really remember. I mean, I like to think, you know, because they say it's like a sign of intelligence if you remember things early. So I'm trying, you know, you try to dredge it up like it's. <laughs> I, like, I barely remember 11. <laughs> if that's the case. Like, Unless I, there's trauma. Yeah, maybe that's it. So at three, you moved. Walk me through it. You go to yeah. from the U.S. So we, to. Yeah, so we lived for a couple of years in Tanzania. 
Then we came home to the Maryland area, the D.C. You know, I always everything Virginia, Maryland, everybody says D.C., but we were living in Maryland. And then when I was 12, we left for the Philippines. And then we lived, but we lived there more than two years. And uh, then we came back for a summer, and uh, my dad got this big post, this really exciting post in Saudi because he had to leave the department, State Department. This was all under the auspices of the Department of Treasury. And it was a straight, you know, it was a diplomat. I mean, it was a, um, um, uh, an appointment, you know, from, from, from President Carter. You know, so it was, he's a Democrat. And um, he had worked under primarily Republican administration. So this is kind of a big deal. And, of course, you know, at that time, President Carter was all about, if you remember, Camp David Accords and Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat and, he was trying to create this kind of, you know, rapprochement or whatever between in the Middle East. He was trying to bring Middle East peace. And our friends then and really now are the Saudis, you know. And so, Dad, you know, that was a big job and it was a big chance. But, I mean, it was a wild place to be because, you know, it's it's not fun time. It's not like a party in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> it Maybe it is like now. It. Maybe it is now. But, man, I mean, you know, we lived in, you know, you'd be in your. We'd have, you know, on a compound with really super high walls. I mean, I remember growing up, you know, some of the places we lived, we had guys, you know, we'd have a guy, a guard at the gate with a gun, you know. And we always lived in big compounds, you know. But that was just my childhood. I mean, that's just all, that's what it was like. So how in the world do you want to be an American music artist? And country. Yeah, that was always fun when I had a deal. Like when I was on Columbia, I'd go to the radio stations and they'd be like, and they'd start in about, you know, your up your upbringing. And, and folks would look at you like, like what, you know, what the heck are you, what, you know, it's as a, as a joke, it's, I, I used to say, yeah, it's, you know, sort of the, the perfect upbringing for a country artist, you know, um, it gets worse. You know, I went to school in new England and, and originally, like when I started out in school, I wanted to study Arabic and be a, like an Islamic, Islamic studies major that, you know, and I actually ended up a political, so I, I finished college and and uh, was a political science, you know, with a with an emphasis in Islamic studies. So you don't ever. So it, it, I, I actually got called in by the record company. I was at Sony, and the record president called me. And after one of these interviews with I don't know the Chicago trip, so there's some big interview, and the and the guy had got kind of in depth about things. He started to read my bio, you know, like really look at it. And uh, I remember the the guy, the record president, saying, "Listen, you know, let's not talk about any of that. Like it's not helping you." at radio at all like that's not helping you at country radio that's right that's not helping you i think you know like when i was on columbia i think the entire state of texas like never played a song of mine and which is funny in a way because i actually have family you know like from texas like i have i have kind of a weird connection i have roots in texas but it meant you know it meant nothing i mean i'm sure there were other problems (laughs) and why because of one, your upbringing, to your education. Why do you think they were, for lack of a better term, blackballing you from radio? I think I was, I think it's, it's funny now, it's ironic now, given um, what, again, these are all relative terms too, when people talk about what's country and what's not. I mean, you know, I got I got to Nashville in 86, and I mean, this this the discussion we have today about bro country, bro country versus pop country versus traditional versus what's America. I mean, listen, that's been going on Nonstop since I, I mean I've seen generations of these ideas, people battling and talking about it. So it's common that people are fighting about what's country. Yeah, we are more obsessed. I mean, I, I'm trying to think. 
the closest thing I've ever seen to our obsession with what our identity is is like jazz. You know, or you like sometimes you talk to jazz guys and they'll you'll say, Oh, you know, I really like Jamie Cullum or something and they look at you like you you just spat on their you know, their mom or something. I mean, people get really wired about their identities in different in, in different genres, but we're we're in country I mean it's kind of charming in a in a in a way. We're just obsessed with it. You know, people are always I, people talk about it all the time. All the time. It's and, funny you bring up the jazz comparison yeah. too because for me, and I'm not a huge fan of dance music, but dance, trance, house, yeah. dark trance, they, they, they do the same thing yeah. in their world. <laughs> they fight about, and it's a very small difference between one and the other, but to them it's the world, at yeah. least to those who have an opinion or those who want to have a big voice. Yeah. It's like here, if I have to hear what's country and what isn't, Again, oh. I, I, people fight me about it. Well, and I got this thing too. I I got a bone to pick because I live in kind of multiple camps. You know, I mean, I like I, I'm a guitar player and I've played on records on my stuff. I'm a piano player. I'm really a roots based guy, and I, I play banjo. I love to play banjo. I love mandolin. Um, I don't do tracks. I don't know how. I wish I did. I don't know how. And so, and I'm kind of uh, too old a dog to treat you know to teach a new trick. And I remember being told to your earlier question, I think it was the perception was, well, he's not really country enough. And that's, you know, that's kind of the, at the end of the day that when I look back and I think, well, you know, I had a number of songs on that record that went on to be, one of them went on to be song of the year in country. And you're talking about? Bless the Broken Road. I mean, it was the first piano recording of it. That you cut. I have it here. This yeah, is, yeah. This is this your is cut. Yeah. Did every long lost dream led me to where Put this out as a single, Bless the Broken Road. No, uh, where were you when I needed you? I know, where were I'd, you, Bob? I'd have been slamming it, and I'd have been yelling at my own people. Like I, so you cut the song. No, we cut it. I'll tell you, it was, it was just the usual thing. Look, I went in. It was, there's a there's a saying in Nashville, or maybe maybe I made it up. I don't know if it if it's good. It's probably something I heard, but it it was you know you get a record deal when your when your friends become record presents, and I had you know I just kept signing record deals. My first record deal was 1988 on Mary Tyler Moore Records. And on I Mary was Tyler two, Moore Records. That's correct. And I was two week, or two weeks away from my first single being released and the company imploded. Well, you got well, we got to take a step back. Yeah, Mary yeah. Tyler Moore Records. Like, you're going to make it after all. Right. So there was a Mary Tyler Moore Records. Did she own it? Uh, well, her corporation did. And they had great stuff. I mean, they had, let me think now. They had Judy Rodman, who had been, who had been, um, maybe was the reigning and female vocalist of the year in country. They had Paul Overstreet, who subsequently went on, you know, not only to be one of the greatest writers in Nashville history, but also had a, you know, really uh, significant artist career. They had, um, gosh, they owned the publishing on Radney Foster and Bill Lloyd's What Became the Faster and Louder. That famous record. Uh, the the receptionist was Trisha Yearwood. And Hold I re- on a no, minute. No, I'm not kidding. And I remember, you know, she was so great, and you know, she was really nice and beautiful. And then somebody said to me, "This is, you know," they said, "Well, you, you know, you, you ought to hear, you ought to hear her sing." The receptionist was Trisha Yearwood at Mary Tyler Moore Records. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. Where you were signed? That's correct. Was Trisha Yearwood? Yes, and that's right. And the, and I'm going to tell you how I got signed too. 
because I'd already, you know, I'd gotten into town and I had my first single, my first cuts. My first single was a song uh, by Michael Martin Murphy called Pilgrims on the Way. And that went to, I don't know, it didn't go that high, but it, it broke the top 40. And I, I, and partly because of that, then I got signed. But the way I got signed is the other guy, there was the guy that was ahead of A&R at MTM Records, MTM is what it was called, was a guy named Tommy West who produced Bill Croce, who, you know, that was more like the sound that I had, actually. Like Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. For yeah. those listening, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, uh, you don't... Um, Jim if Croce. I could read your mind, though, what a tale. Uh, time, time in a bottle. Oh, my God. You know? um, I'm a right. big Jim Croce fan. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like... And that was your sound? Do you feel like that was more that of was your sound? That was definitely more my sound. In fact, that was, you know, the I know that was the rap on me uh, when I had a country deal. It was like, man, he's, he's like a folk rock sort of, you know, I don't know. I don't know what they thought, but I, I get it. I kind of get it. I get it in a way. But for Tommy, I literally had to stand there. I didn't play in a club. I mean, I, I was playing in clubs. Uh, but I remember to uh, I auditioned for Tommy West, and he we he had a a room, and I just came into his living room, and he sat on a couch, and he just said, you know, he's like, go ahead, and I played ten songs. I like played an album. I just stood there right in front of him, just played an album. And he's watching you. He's just watching because me. you hear like the people that audition for SNL, and they're up on stage, and there are three people watching. Yeah, and they don't really make a lot of movement. They right, don't that's smile what it was like. Lot. Yeah, I, it was poker face and. And he just sat there and, you know, and I'm not saying it was creepy because I really admire him and he was, and, and look, he, he got, he listened to the whole thing and he goes, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, and away we started to go. And then uh, it, it just happens that the timing of all this was I, I got married right about that same time to, uh, to Becca. And, and the thing was at the, also at the same time there, it was sort of the end of the run of Pilgrims on the Way. So I remember on my honeymoon, the first time and the only time I ever heard Pilgrims on the Way on the radio, we were down at like, you know, Destin, of course, you know, because we didn't have any money. So we're like, Destin. And we're out on the beach and the loudspeakers and they're playing that Pilgrims on the Way, which was a hundred percenter too. It was, you know, you wrote it by yourself. hundred percenter. Yeah. And it was like some weird, and I was a piano and it was like the 80s. So I had to have a saxophone on it. I mean, it was a really <laughs> weird song. And it, it was like my breakthrough. That was, it, it seemed like I thought then I thought that's it. You know, oh my God! And it sounded more like a Hornsby song. When you, if you listen to it now, if you ever check that out. Um, anyway, so that was, and I, I remember right the day I got back from my honeymoon, I went to Mary Tyler Moore, which is where Paul Worley Studio is now, that building, and uh, and used to the old chapel building. And I went over there, and I walked in the door, and they said, um, "There's been a, pro, a legal, like there was a big criminal. I think there was a criminal. I think there was. I mean, I." I don't want to go into because I don't know the specifics, but they the Mary Tyler Moore Company pulled the plug on it, and so in a way, it's one of the saddest things for for a lot of people because they got out just when the wave hit. <laughs> it's one of the one of the worst business moves ever. And you think about you know 1988, you've got something, and they really had something going on. I mean, there was an article in the Tennessean a few months ago talking about the guys that ran that company, Henry Hurt and uh, Tommy West and others, and they're saying, man, that you know, it was a stacked independent label, and they um, they pulled the plug. So you're on it, and when you did Broken Road, that was on MTM. No, so Broken Road comes, you know, yeah. It's, I mean, listen, my situation is was so bad. It's funny that I mean, I kept getting signed. I mean, I got signed. <laughs> Tim Dubois signed me. Joe Galani signed me. Um, 
I, I don't know, there was a, another label, an EMI label that signed me to a kind of a rock deal. Uh, Joe Galani was going to move me at one point. At one point, it was set up that I was going to work with the folks from Mellencamp's in Indiana. Um, it sounds like people were wanting to shift you over to, to a bit of that sound. Yeah. If they're I, putting you with Mellencamp and they have... Well, I thought that was going to be great. And then um, when Galani... It was right when Galani got moved over to New York to take over everything for RCA. And the, and actually, Josh Leo took over and he dropped me. And uh, But Galani, at one point from New York, was going to move me to Indiana and let me do... There was a song I had that became an Alabama cut, but we, it was called The Cheap Seats. I know and The that, Cheap Seats. Yeah, so yeah. that was a big... I had a band called The Pretty Red Wing. And I was, I mean, I, my, my big thing was I played live. I played the Cheap live. Cheap Seats was only an album? Like, I know that song. It was no. a single. It was a okay. single. Yeah, okay, it yeah, didn't yeah. go number one or anything like that, but it went, and, the, you know, for years they played it. It was a big song in baseball because it's about minor league baseball. That's why I knew it. That's right. I was such a big baseball yeah, fan. Eight, and seven inning stretch in a lot of places for, for quite a while, that was the song. I mean, then, you know, Fogarty has, you know, Poopy and Center Coach, Field. Center Field. Yeah. But a lot of places be like the cheap seats, yeah, da da da, and we used to play that in my band, and we'd play the fire out of it. You know, we'd rock it real hard. Um, and I'm really thankful that Alabama did it because it was a significant break for me. In what way? Well, for one thing, it was actually unequivocally, even though it, to me it was kind of like a folky thing, but really, it was a country song by Alabama. You know, and if you, it's one thing. You know, if you get uh, Michael Martin Murphy, for example, "Walk the Line" is his whole career. Now he does cowboy songs, right? Cowboy poetry and all that. But he was also a pop a pop singer and one of the first songs that I ever learned as a guitar player was Geronimo's Cadillac. And that's not really a country song. That really belongs more to the folk rock field. But then he had a country career. So he was like walking that line, same line that I would walk, only unsuccessfully. <laughs> Alabama's Alabama. They are it gets I mean, that no shit more is like country. that is not it gets no more country yeah. than Alabama. They get yeah. whatever they sing is now a country song. Well, yeah, now it's like, it's like so country, you know, it's, it, it truly feels almost like another time songs like high cotton, you know, like that's amazing stuff. So that was for me, that was a little bit, I mean, that's not the breakthrough. The breakthrough for me was Winona only love that, that, that's why I got to stay in town. Let me do a commercial here. I don't even want to stop you, but Mike's holding a commercial up here. Let me yeah. talk about Express Pros. So for just one corporate job, only four to six people will get an interview for every 250 resumes received. Now, those aren't good odds. You're talking about, I mean, your shot of even getting an interview aren't good, much less getting the job. The fact is you need a real person advocating to a real employer that this is a real job and you're a real person. You do a really good job, right? That's where Express Employment Professionals comes in. Express is your local resource to help you get a new job, Express is more than 18,000. Oh, the dog jumped right in the middle of my Express. Got a little spot here. Dusty. Express has more than 18,000 jobs that need to be filled right now. Find your nearest office at ExpressPros.com. And Express never charges a job seeker to help find employment. Your locally owned Express office can help you uh, connect with jobs in the community. ExpressPros.com helps you find jobs if you're looking for a manufacturing job or accounting job, customer service, sales, distribution. I keep going on. You name it. Visit the nearest Express office today and speak with hiring professionals connected to the available jobs in your community. Need a job? Visit ExpressPros.com today to find the location nearest to you. Okay, so you talk about the Wine Owner song. Yeah. All right, so tell me about that and why that's your big break. Um, well, it's my big break because it went, it went number one. And um, it didn't go number one on Billboard, but in, it, back in the day, you know, Bill, uh, BMI or ASCAP would throw you a party and give you a, one of those cups 
you get a cup if it was on number one on either R and R or uh, Billboard Records. You gotta you gotta take a step back for a second. Cause, so now you're writing these songs and getting breaks, but are you done pursuing the artist? No, no, okay. no. Gosh, no, no. The whole time I'm, and in fact, uh, I got when so going back when MTM imploded, my publishing deal was then tied in. I'd come from a different group, Nineteen uh, Avenue or wait, Lorenz Creative Services. Which is its own wild thing, because that's kind of where Randy Travis broke out with that, you know, arguably the record which kicked off the wave. The you know the new traditionalist movement was a lot of people have pointed to the album "Storms of Life" by Randy Travis, and it comes at the same time as Steve Earle and Lyle Lovett and Nancy Griffith and this thing Dwight Yoakam. They call it the new traditionalist movement. So I came to town right when that was happening. The company that signed me. This is just before the MTM thing was a primarily Christian organization called Lorenz Creative Services and it had a thing called 19th, 19th Street Productions, I think it was. So Charlie Monk's running the countryside and he is the manager of, at that time, Randy Travis when that record goes down. So that was happening right where I get signed in when, I, when I first come to Nashville. So I get this massive education on not just country, but like serious roots kind of and and really I look to it like hey man if Lyle Lovett Nancy Griffith and Steve Earle have deals someday I could have a deal because I live somewhere somewhere in that land I'm yeah was there you mentioned Randy Travis being the launching point because that record was so big yeah kind of put that sound out now he probably wasn't the first to do it but his was so big that it made the movement happen the success of it I think so was there an argument okay this isn't country like was that was Randy Travis no it was the other way around so yeah okay yeah so it's it's you know what it's like I'll give you the to me I'll give you an analogy um Nirvana I know this is really weird like what you know how's this an analogy but like there were a lot of you know, hair bands and spandex and in the, the like the eighties hair bands, right, the poisons right. of the world. Exactly. And then Cobain. And like to me, to me, overnight people go like, Well well hell. Well that's rock. Listen to that guy. Right. That's like like that's the end of the world. I mean he's rocking like and sure enough, he killed him. I mean like he he had that thing and the grunge thing comes and you just go, Mother of God what okay you know so Randy Travis did that to the yeah, country that's format what I, it, it reminded that's what I you think or showed you what country really was digging up bones exhuming things I remember going like exhuming but yeah not only that but then you've got you know then you've got Buck Owens with span you know like with leather pants and and punk sensibility Dwight Yoakam which was uh, guitars Cadillac and then you have Love of the Five and Dime Nancy Griffith wrote it but Kathy Mattea you know so that's happening then Steve Earle sounds kind of like, like Springsteen. He grew up in a holler. So I don't know. It, it was so great and intense. And like to, when I tell young writers, you know, if you'd been here in 1987, 1988, like right then when the wave hit, and this is pre-Garth, by the way, like it was unbelievable. It was so exciting because you really felt like, like the music coming out of Nashville at that time, I mean, everybody was fired up. You talk about Dwight Yoakam. For me, I love Dwight Yoakam. Yeah. Still love Dwight Yoakam. Yeah. I remember watching his music videos being like, I don't even know. Like, I, I was raised with the country music part of my life with my grandma, and it was yeah. old school country. I'm from Arkansas. So, you grew up in Arkansas, yeah. So, anybody, so first of all, Johnny Cash was uh, Johnny Cash. Uh, anybody with an Arkansas pedigree was, right. was the biggest to us. Yeah. And so I would see Dwight Yoakam on TV. Yeah. 
and go like, what is happening? Like, it's a rock star with a cowboy hat uh-huh. who's dancing like yeah none of the things matched and that's what made it so cool and then the guitar playing like the electric you know the what was it <laughs> as Dwight Yoakam was happening yeah what did the industry think of him um I think that they were you know I think they embraced you know it in the early in the late 80s and early 90s one of the things that was so you know particularly before deregulation and um I think what happened in Nashville, the I think what people will write about the explosion that was Nashville, in particularly in the I mean the '90s in a way, if you look at it broadly speaking, when you know it goes from in the mid '80s, the perception of country is I think it's about the size of I don't know jazz again. Would I go back to like you know some more niche kind of thing, right? And then you know country music it just taken over the world, right? And I think when something like that happens, it's almost like a religious movement. It requires a charismatic, some charismatic elements have to then explode, and then it creates waves, and then concentric waves, and more waves. And um, eventually, you have the you know things slow down, and and a lot of things that are beautiful about an, a movement change, and then gets you know structured and stratified. But I think what happened was that people were allowed to be many things. That the diversity of country music, if you look you know, into the early nineties is extraordinary because you have, yes, Randy Travis, you have Vern Gosden, you know, like you want to talk about, you know, damn country, you know, like, wow. But then you'd have, you know, you'd have Vince Gill coming up and, you know, and then the new grass revival. And there were things that were percolating from a bluegrass standpoint. They were really getting you know, really, and were really creative and, and moving. Then the emergence of the mega stars, the rock stars led by, you know, Garth, who, I don't know, outsells the Beatles in eight years or whatever, you know, it's, will that ever, anything like that ever happen again in country music? I don't know how, it'll, it'll take in a massive paradigm shift. But, you know, you think about all of that, then the folkies, you had Hal Ketchum, you had Mary Chapin Carpenter winning, you know, Female Vocals of the Year in 93 or whatever it was, you had... You know, all of these things lived, and they lived together, and they profited together. So, and pop country then emerged too in a different way. Shania Twain, you know, like that's like what happened with that. Like when it would take over, it would take over. And so as the water rose, all the ships went up with it. That's yeah. I mean, I think it was like the big, the big boat, as they say. You know, it could carry a lot of things, and it really, to me, it doesn't change until the chicks. When the when the you know when the, when it all goes down with the president and the chicks, to me that was the beginning of the of a of a kind of a. It was sort of to me, the where we began to stop allowing things to sort of expand and and remain extraordinarily vital and diverse, which is healthy. It's like a democracy. It's like it's really better when we have a lot of ideas from a multiplicity of of. It, this is I mean this is just my I'm just I'm just talking off cuff you know on trying to uh, to make music theory or music popular music theory coincide with some ideas about culture and politics but i think you know the many is is more powerful than the dominant few do you feel like now with the landscape and you have artists not even sonically yeah but philosophically right that have the brothers marin uh-huh although they do sound slightly different than what's considered traditional. 
they aren't in that, hey, we just fall into the mold and believe what everybody in country is starting to believe. Do you feel like that type of thing is what was happening back then too? Are you starting to see it again a bit with some of these – again, as you're describing all these people in this multicultural movement. Yeah. And I'm right in the middle of it here. I'm starting to finally see it again. Yeah. With people having voices and ideas and differences and staying the same. Yeah. But being different. Yeah. Because it sounds like as you're describing Vince and as you're describing people like we talk about Dwight Yoakam. He wasn't I mean, he's straight up California. Yeah, no. But I, I when I was an artist I met Buck Owens, you know. And I and he was really nice to me. Um, you know, he played my record and he was just you know, he and I, anyway, I did a little bit of you know research on just because I didn't grow up listening to Buck Owens. I mean, I didn't. I mean, I wish when I was at believe me when I was at a country radio, I wished I had all kinds of records in my background. But you know, it wasn't the, the only country stuff that I really heard growing up was my dad loved Johnny Cash, and and I know that there's a period of time when he wasn't considered country, and there was all that going on. Oh, which is again, you talk about the cycles and yeah. how you saw, like again, with me. Right. And my grandma, it, it was the gospel stuff too. It was Johnny yeah. Cash. But I remember her telling me that she went to see a Cash show and he played a lot in Arkansas, especially early. Yeah. And there were people picketing out front because this wasn't, that's not country. <laughs> and like the person that we hold <laughs> as the most Well, then he became country, a sacred cow. Right. Yes. Yeah. Is, wasn't, they were so angry that that wasn't a country music show. So why are you calling it a country music show? Like that's 10, the same thing when I say brothers, Again, every, everything's a cycle. Everything's that's how a cycle. we are. That's literally, that's just, we like, we're like eating our young or something. You know, like we're really, we're a funny, it's funny. It's vibrant and powerful and funny. And then kind of sad sometimes all the, like I did a show. I won't say who it was the other night, but I did a show and, and you know, um, I mean, ironically when I play now, I, I sound like, uh, I think, People think I'm as, you know, uh, I don't know. I've, I've literally had people come up to me and say, hey, man, thanks a lot for keeping a country. Thank you. And I think that's, you know, because I'll play Cowboy <laughs> Take Me Away and then the way I play Born to Fly and stuff like that. You know, now that's really country sounding. And then um, and then I always had a gospel thing in me anyway. That's just that that actually helped me stay in Nashville because, I, you know, that was sort of genuine. I did grow up singing in, in church even though it wasn't evangelical or this or that. But I mean, like I still, I sang in church my whole life and I like to sing in churches to this, you know, it's a big part of my life too. Um, even that though was sort of on the wrong side of it culturally, but nonetheless, I, I did have that. Um, but, oh God, I've lost my train of thought. I got thinking about the gospel. And I you got, were playing with oh. somebody <laughs> and I, I think this person, oh, you being country, you sounding country. That was your thing where people were like, hey, you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I remember now. Yeah, so I'm playing with this guy, and I'm like, we're down in like a, like a. It was during one of the like a CMF CMA Fest thing, and I mean, I play so many writers things now that I can't even remember them all. But I remember this night because it was recent. Um, it was like two, or th- I don't know, three or four months ago. And anyway, this particular writer is a very successful writer, and he's very country. And he got up there and he said, and he says to the audience, this big audience, he's like. I'm just glad he says, I says, I tell you what, I'm not going to play any goddamn Sam Hunt record. He says, I'd like anything just as long as it's not a goddamn, you know, pardon me for, no, you're good. Listen, it's like free. Sam Hunt. And I'm like, I'm thinking, what the hell do you care? First of all, Sam Hunt is, unless, unless you're just deaf, dumb and blind, like 
that guy has lots of talent. I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I can't, I can't write that stuff. I mean, I'd like to. I mean, I'd love to sit in a room with him. I've heard, by the way, from other writers that he's just an outstanding writer, and he's and he's even kind of old school, meaning he doesn't everything doesn't have to be done in two hours. Oh, he's notoriously slow on right. purpose. On purpose, days and, even. Yeah. Well, see, that's the generation. Look, I came up in the generation where you know you 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 would sit around and talk about where to put a comma so that the page would look right. You know, like it wasn't. It, so this there's so many things that have changed, but the the larger point for me was. Okay, let's talk authenticity. If you, if everybody wants to talk about authenticity, let's take a moment and just step back for a second. Imagine you grow up in your, you grow up in America, in your, in in, in the nineties, your teens, your early teens are in the nineties. That's and, me. That's me. For right, example, right. Go ahead. let's just imagine that. And so that was that's like almost everybody that we're that, that, who's sort of listening to all of this. If you grow up at that time and you fall in love with some country acts, and why wouldn't you? They were it was an amazing time, right? And amazing writing community, vibrant, vibrant, vibrant. But you live in America, so what's even you know the the other thing that's incredible and emerging and and really muscular is urban music and rap, right? So as you move into the early two thousands, if you're not listening to rap at all, and mixed in with your gumbo that has some country acts, right? Then I just don't know what country you're in because that's how it is. That's what it was. I mean, no, you aren't going home to Mar- Mayberry RFD and sitting and just only listening to a, you know, a few little records and you're not going to... No, that's, that's not culture. So, of course, Sam, like a lot of people, you know, like including my son, who has this real pop country sound, as artists, they naturally integrated these sounds and that is, by definition, honest. To me, that's always been my biggest argument is it's no one kicking at country going, I'm uh-uh. going to change it. It's everyone using the tools they've grown up with. That's right. And, again, I was born in the 80s, so I was a 90s teenage kid. And yeah. it was also when Napster happened. Yeah. And I then realized I could have every song that started with L. All I had to do was hit it. And, da- and I had every kind of – no. I grew up in Arkansas. Yeah. So if it wasn't Glenn Campbell or Andy Griffith Gospel Records yeah. or Johnny Cash or Ray Charles, right. then it started to be McGraw and Garth. Then it started to be Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Right. Then it was hip hop. And right. so at my core, yeah. I'm a country music fan. But if I acted like I wasn't a hip hop guy yeah. or an alternative guy, yeah. it would be a lie. You'd and be do, lying. And, do we want, <laughs> and, and to your point of authenticity, do we want people lying? Isn't that the purpose of this entire format is that – it's supposed to be real, and if yeah. you, and look what the people Sam reach like. There's yeah. a reason that he sells out amphitheaters every single time instantly because yeah. he's actually reaching humans. Yeah, and isn't that the point? And here's the thing: in 20 years, people are gonna go, "Man, I wish it was like the old Sam Hunt days." Yeah, he'll be like, "Boy, that was country. That was country back then." <laughs> this guy over here with the the, the bike horn, you know, this <laughs> this is not country. So. Look, I make. I'd be at the same time. I, I got to say, it's. I'm not talking about both sides of my mouth, but you know, like as a musician, I mean, like when I do demos now, I get a couple other guys like me who play a bunch of instruments. There's no money for demos anymore. You know, people don't do like they used to. It was like you know, used to. It was every every six weeks we just do a big old session and just put it on the card, and everybody was. Those days are not. That's not where we're at right now. Um, but because I mean, I'm really a roots guy. I really am, you know, and I mean, what I really love to listen to is still 
I mean, I still love a Patty Loveless record like crazy. You know, I still love Newgrass Revival. I still love, you know, I love Jimmy Webb's song sung by Glenn Campbell uh, because I'm a, I'm a piano player and I just, the harmonic ideas in those songs, that really was as much as anything that kind of brought me to the genre. I love, you know, the way, you know, the people that are really who play acoustic guitar beautifully. I try, you know, my whole life, I'm always trying to stretch as a musician, but I don't really, I don't really dig a lot of digital information in terms of my aesthetic in terms, you know, I'm, I'm an old dog, if you will. And happily. So at the same time, I really feel like I've, as long as I've been in this industry, I've been hearing this shtick since the day I got here. (laughs) I'm I'm tired as damn, honest to God. I mean, I'm sick of people, you know, it's just, it's so, it's so nonproductive, you know, because yes, thank God for Zach Brown and, you know, and, and the earthy, whatever the roots side of things that still, and I definitely hope that it makes a comeback also because if it does, I might have a job as I get older, you know, you know, cause more and more I find that the stuff that I'm doing it, it yeah, it just sounds like it's hopelessly in another world, but, but these things do tend to work in cycles and the song is at the end of the day, it is the king, the queen, it is, you know, the court. Eventually everything does return to the song. I know that. And eventually everyone has to be able to play such a song like that somewhere with a guitar or a piano in a room. And that's the classic thing. And that, and most songwriters and artists, you know, that's really what they want. They want to have a song that you can play and it just immediately is transformative that, you know, that's what they refer to as a copyright. And it's not just money, you know, it it isn't, it isn't, I'm not, not to seem, you know, pure as a driven snow or anything, but for those of us who are crazy songwriter musician types, we are we are like like odd religious dev- devotees and and pilgrim souls. I mean, we really are. You know, it's it's a strange bunch. You know, I think you might be the smartest person I've ever talked to. <laughs> <I know. laughs> I'm sure I'm not. <laughs> like I'm I'm listening and I'm understanding everything you're saying, and I'm just like wow. And it's crazy that you know there have been a couple people I've brought in yeah. and talked to and. You go okay. There, it, it's a familiar level level they're thinking on with me. Not that I'm right, but it's a right. familiar level. Yeah. And you're talking on a familiar level that I think in, but so much smarter. Like I want to go back no, and listen no. to this and go, "This is what I should say next time I get to argue." Because I have no. the same. Like yeah. to me, you can, there's room for everything. This is and this is ha- what I there say. There has to be room for everything. There's room for everything. Yeah. And there's no definition inside of art. As soon as you start to put walls around art, is you screwed it. it. You, then it's not what you wanted it to no, be anyway. No, and and what do you want out of people? You know, you say you want artists. You you say you even know what that means, and then you, you know, the nature of those kinds of people is they're sort of explosive. They they move in directions. They go to they, the river moves in a way that you you didn't see it coming. You know, I'm like that's what that looks like. And like my son, for example, is so Levi is you know making his way in music right now and his sound is more pop country 
But then he has two or three different gears, and I'm always telling him, I mean, he gets sick of hearing it. We just literally got off the road from two weeks together, and we shared a room, which I'll tell you what, <laughs> that's something, you know, because he's 26, and God, a poor guy. You know, we're in like Amsterdam. He's he's sharing a room with his dad. Think about that for a moment. <laughs> just let that settle in. <laughs> but we had a great time, you know, and we're out, and we're playing with a lot of people, and, and uh, you know, we're doing, you know, a country week in the U.K., and. And I've been playing in and out of the UK for years. I mean, that it's just a. Do you have a following there? I wouldn't say I have a following um, in the UK. I mean, that when I was on Columbia, the one great tour, I had one just unforgettable tour. Well, and then I was signed. My my, my rock deal was out was out of London, so I guess I have all kinds of UK connections. But um, I got to open for Alison Krauss and Union Station, and they did like the Royal. You know, um, oh, what's right there in the Tam, the Thames, the uh, Royal Festival Hall or whatever. And we did like Ulster Hall and the Gaiety Theater in Dublin, I mean, like the best places. And I could take one musician with me. I was allowed one side man. I took Daryl Scott, who I had just met, and we subsequently came. He's one of my best friends in the world. It's like a brother to me, and he's my longest to this day, longest running co-writer. Do you, you know Daryl at all? I don't. Oh, you don't know? Do you know who he is, though? I know who he is. People yeah. talking about him. Yeah, but I've never met him. Yeah, well, he's one of the best ever, and he's taught me more about what is country and what isn't than probably anybody. Because I don't know anybody who knows country music, the history of it, more and can do. You know, he can do anything. You know, this guy can play literally everything. But anyway, he's my side man. You know, uh, and we would go into these places, and I, and I would do my forty minutes, and with Daryl, you know. And then we would sit and we would watch this greatest, you know, one of the greatest of all American musical forms, you know, like just her, <laughs> you know, just Allison, you know, and then Tominsky and, you know, the band, you know, Jerry Douglas. And we literally would sit night after night and then we'd, then we'd get in our car because they had a bus, we had to follow them in a car and we'd drive through Ireland, you can imagine. And it was, it was just as romantic as it should be. It was a great thing it was extraordinary you know and that was like the greatest thing I ever got to do and I remember I even uh when I flew back from the UK um I literally had to get off the plane and went right to playing a like a holiday inn you know on my radio tour and I think I got drunk you know and 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 like the record president came and like he got drunk too and and uh, I felt sick the next day and I thought oh my god you know I mean, it's kind of a great thing to do. It's a great American thing to do. But now my son, you know, our son, not mine, but our son, we have three sons. So oldest boy, Levi's out there. And he's already had like great sort of ups and downs. And, and, uh, and he is teaching me about a new paradigm, which is occurring. And I, you know, there's always a new paradigm. Something's always coming, of course. And, um, and it was interesting because this past year, I helped co-produce a movie called The Last Songwriter. And in this movie with the direct, this director, Mark Barger Elliott, we looked at what has happened with streaming and the like severe attrition in the songwriting community in Nashville. Like the Wall Street Journal says, 80% of our uh, making a living population has lost, you know, there's only like it went from 4,000 to 408 years. And so, and my job in it was to score it, but also my job was to pick songwriters to talk about it. And to talk about what it, you know, like what the art form is really like, so we got some ma- major stars. Garth Brooks was agreed to do it. Jason Isbell, you know, who's just extraordinary, he did it. Emily Harris, and then the 
the and yet the main event in a way is I picked Matresa Berg, Tony Arata, Tom Douglas, Alan Shamblin to be this sort of internal dialogue in the movie. It's just a an hour long movie and it 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 premiered at the Nashville Film Festival and got an a you know like a appreciation award or whatever the whatever they they have there. And it's a beautiful movie. It um but a lot of what it says in it, you know, it's sort of talking about streaming. So, you know, streaming comes along and it doesn't really include writers and publishers as we know. And the deals are really made the with the people that own the sound recording, which is usually the record company, unless you're Taylor Swift or you're Kanye or whatever, and you own your own sound recording. And so we know the reality and of course the the growth of streaming is off is off the chart. And so consequently you know, low man on the totem pole is a songwriter. So that's all true. Like that's all just happening. And in the midst of that, I see my son, um, he's on, you know, big machine and they have a really amicable parting of the ways. And he's got this great management company, iconic, which is really a label. And they just start putting out, you know, songs, singles as streaming singles. And he kind of has showed me that how great really streaming is in a lot of ways. And it's, it's, it's really bringing about this kind of democratization of the form because people who aren't just the four or five labels, that's all that's left now, right. Who get their little corporate push. You've got people like, you know, he's got the first song he did. Don't waste the night. You know, he's got, you get 2 million streams from somebody that nobody knows. And next single, the song called stupid in a week, it was like a hundred and something thousand and he's explaining to me, you know, Dad, this is great. Do you see that it's great? And what I'm realizing is that it is great. It's great. The problem isn't streaming. The, I mean, yes, it would be wonderful if the folks that created the forum, the Pandoras, the Apples, the Spotify's, if they had just gone like, well, you know, it's just morally wrong to, <laughs> to cut out. But the thing is that because the nature of the laws that govern intellectual property in America, we are held under compulsory licenses, which means that we can't negotiate in this, you know, in this society, this capitalist society. We cannot negotiate, for, for, you know, for our worth in business songwriters. So we're we're screwed unless Congress has to go ahead and say, Hey, these laws are archaic. This digital revolution is upon us. Music is being played more than ever. Let's find some way to, you know, to in a fair way to monetize it. And before we lose this one of, you know, one of America's greatest assets is its songwriters. But it's really been interesting with Levi because I've, you know, when I was doing the movie, I kept thinking, you know, ooh, you know, streaming bad, <laughs> evil, you know. And I've come to realize it really that's not where the fight is the fight needs to be fought it, laws need to change but but streaming itself is just you know who doesn't want to have access to all these songs I've always felt with streaming and right now it's the wild west as far as laws meaning no one's breaking it there just aren't them yet yeah and just like the wild west eventually there's there'll be a, a, a sheriff that yeah. comes into town that actually regulates what's happening in the town. Yeah. And until then, you got a lot of people running crazy. There are no lo- the rules are so old school. Yeah. That they're not re- they're not real time. They're not yeah. real time with what's happening with with 
a lot of my friends are songwriters. Yeah. A lot of my friends go testify and talk to Yeah, Congress. I do too. Me too. Yeah. 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 And when you're now a new friend. So now yeah. I have another friend that goes up. <laughs> we go up to NS, we do the NSAI thing and, you know, thank God for Bart and Krista and the, and those folks. You know, it's funny when you do them because you, you realize that you're really there to play a couple of songs and, you know, it's, I, it, it, something's going to have to happen and I don't know, uh, I just don't know when. I believe it will. I mean, I, I know that it'll happen, but I, I know that the laws will change eventually. I just hope they do, you know, before too long. But And a lot of that is because I feel for younger songwriters that, you know, it's just, it's really good to be able to make a little bit of money. You're not talking baseball money here. You're not talking about, hey, you know, let's, uh, you know, like we're talking about just make enough money that you can do what it is that God meant you to do, which is to write this poetry to be, try and become Jimmy Webb to try try and write Galveston I mean, that's what you want to do you want to write American Pie I mean you want to write Fire and Rain you want to write damn near anything Carol King wrote <laughs> you know like that's what you want to do and and but to do that you've got to be able to apply your trade all the time and it it you know will will great writers emerge that one of the interesting statistics that we found I mean this is uh, is that even though less people are making a living at songwriting, that it's still kind of like the same general number of songwriters are floating around this town. So the true hearts, the real believers, they're all out there. They're all out there. And frankly, if streaming gives people a chance to be unique and exciting, and, you know, maybe John Mark is the gatekeeper, you know, if he is, he's, he's pretty groovy, you know, as far as I can tell. You know, I, I mean, I know at least maybe I'm speaking as a father, as a dad, you know, like he's been good, you know, he, he digs Levi's stuff and, and it's not just the, it, it's its own thing. Right. And I just think you have to be thankful for folks like that too, that are, you know, that want to hear something new that are willing to take some chances. You know, I think you're speaking as a dad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. Everybody's got their own opinion. Um, here's, I have some Levi there Because I, I like Levi Yeah Yeah Here I wanna be stupid I don't want things to make sense I don't wanna be right Don't wanna move on Don't wanna waste time Don't wanna be strong I feel like this has been a, a college course now, now I wanna shift it a second I wanna Here's my Here's my theory on streaming And why it's yeah. all Something's also gonna happen to it Because it's, it's becoming out of control Yeah To where these streams are so inflated yeah. To where if somebody's got a song, I have friends that have songs that have been streamed 10, 10 million times. Yeah, yeah. They can't sell at a bar. Yeah. You're going to tell me 10 million people have listened to this song, but you can't get 50 people to buy tickets. But I can tell, but I can show you the opposite side of that, the other side of that. And again, I'm, I'm again, I'm, it sounds like I'm just sitting around here pitching to my son. But I mean, I just, I'm telling you, like, he goes out and he plays, he's, he's three days away from going out with 18 days with Eli Young Band. And he gets, goes out with, you know, I mean, you know, Kip takes him out and Dan and Shay take him out and Kelsey takes him out and he goes to Chicago and he hard tickets clubs now. He's put almost two years in and he's got followings in pockets. And I even know, I couldn't believe it. I'm in London, right, with my kid in the same room. <laughs> but we're going to doing shows, right? And I'm playing the show and I'm watching the audience and he's up there, you know, and he's singing, uh, what's the first one? Um, not stupid, the uh, Don't Waste the Night. Don't Waste the Night, come on, come over. I'm looking at the audience and they're singing it. And I'm thinking, well, okay. I mean, I, 
you know, that's that's trippy to me, you know. Let me not be a dad for a second. Yeah, yeah. And talk on the other side of this. Okay. I do believe that it's reaching more people than anything since Napster. Yeah. It's we're back to that to yeah. where people First of all, what we need is people to pay for the premium services. Yeah. That's a thing. Yeah. So that will in the end trickle down yeah to the songwriters at least for a bit until we're able to change, change the laws. Law. Yeah. But paying for the premium services is actually a big deal. Okay. So we need more people to buy the premium services. I don't okay. care if it's Spotify, Apple Music, iHeartRadio. How much is that per month? Nine ninety nine for like a Spotify. Oh, with it's no commercials. Pandora. You know, everybody now is doing on demand music. Okay. And there's no doubt that people are hearing these songs. And if someone's coming to town, they're able to check them out easily because they have access on their phone to right. go boop 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 boop. Right, boop. right, right. Um, or people can develop fan bases too with social media, also a big part of this. Yes. I'll give you part. an example. I took Lauren Elaine out and she opened for us for <clears throat> mm, 10 shows for yeah. my band. Yeah. Uh, and Lauren was like, I have 50 million streams I, yeah. and I'm opening for you. And I'm like, uh-huh. you're right. That's crazy because you're so much better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it is reaching the mass yeah. more so, but yeah. what's happening is people are seeing these inflated numbers and going, that's not real, so it's ruining it for everyone. Okay. And so yeah. when someone comes up and they go, now I'll just give you a normal conversation inside of yeah. – because for me, everything's digital. Like the, the days of transmitters going into cars, yeah. there's probably three to five years of that being really strong, yeah. and that's going to start going away. So I've already shifted how I do my uh, job. Uh, I'm playing to the phone. Yeah. Like everything I do plays to the phone huh. because everybody's got theirs all the time. Yeah. I do my radio show, and I got three to five years of really strong, that really strong, especially in country, which is a couple years behind. Right, yeah. But I'm playing to the phone already. I yeah. have five million that listen on normal radio and another five million that download my podcast. So I'm yeah. looking at pretty much a 50-50 split in who's taking my content. Yeah. But I can tell you sitting in these meetings, when people come in and go, well, I have this artist, and he's got three million streams. Right. I go, somebody just playlisted you. Yeah. And – they're not showing us the algorithm and how these things are getting tracked. Right. Like, let's have a little bit of transparency here on, uh-huh. at least with SoundScan, when albums were bought, there was some transparency in knowing this many records came from this store. It was right. beeped. There's not that in the digital landscape, so it yeah. makes everyone seem full of crap because you right. have people that are just putting songs on playlists, and nobody knows it. And because you bought the guy a dinner or took a, you know took a nap at his house, you all of a sudden <laughs> get playlisted. And that doesn't happen with everybody, but it is happening like yeah. that. But at the same time, radio has its problems. Yeah. Streaming has its problems. Everywhere has a weakness. Satellite has its weakness. Higher end. They don't know how many people are listening either. Much smaller audience. Mm. Everybody's got its weakness, but everybody has its strength too. Yeah. And so I could sit here and I often do and pick radio apart. And boy, do I get in trouble for that. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, that's who pays me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And when I go on the radio and talk about how radio is failing me. It's dying. And and not even that it's dying. It's shifting. It's shifting, yeah. But I go hey, uh, why aren't we working on some of these new initiatives that we know yeah. regardless? I yell at my own people, yeah. and I get in trouble. So I feel safe in yelling at everybody else too. Yeah. I just yell at everybody. But I think that's my – when it comes to streaming, that's the issue. These inflated numbers yeah. are making everyone look at it and go, well, this is absurd. None of it's true because you can buy you can buy 10,000 streams very easily, and people are doing it. Labels yeah. are buying streams like crazy, yeah. and it's like YouTube views. You can buy YouTube views, no problem. That still happens, but that was a two years ago thing, really, where you were mm-hmm. buying YouTube views. Now people are buying streaming numbers as well. Right. So I'm going to pay, and I'm going to get 50,000 streams, and I'm going to look that much cooler. Okay, well, you pay $10,000, all of a sudden you got a million streams. 
and it helps you go, well, I got, now I got a million streams. This guy should come play here. Yeah. Too many people are doing that. The oversaturation of the person with 10 million streams is happening yeah. and people are starting to roll their eyes at it. Yeah. Does all that make sense? It does make sense. I, I mean, it, it does. And, and yet I'm, I have to admit, I mean, I'm not, I don't feel like, you know, I'm in my fifties and I, I think I resemble my own generation. You know, a lot of this stuff is kind of, it's like mystifying to me. What's not mystifying is the idea once something starts to take streaming. And it's always—it's funny because it's always happened. Yeah, Some, something will take, and then you find some way to pay for it. But I have to say that I think the where the rubber meets the road a little bit is any form of if you get any kind of saturation or any kind of that may not be the I don't even know if I know the ter- the terms any traction and you pl- and if you play live the, if there if you notice a relationship. If there's a relationship between being a really vital live musician where you go and you know, you're know you really building something, you have a sound, then I think you've at least got some building blocks to work with in this very strange time, which it feels like a, an interim time. To me, it's, an, it's a niche time. If for, yeah. This, this is yeah. what I'm seeing as I can... For me, technology is huge and getting all my messages out. See, now you seem like the smartest guy I've ever met. No, no, that's, that's not true. Say. But I, 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 I have to eat. So I have yeah. to pay the bills. So I've got to figure out how to use all of these areas in order right. to get my message out. Whatever it is, everybody has a message. Right. So I've got to learn how to use my Twitter in the, in the correct way, my Instagram in the right way, what music I put up, what mm-hmm. music I promote. to put. So there are all these things. And what I've determined is that we're becoming a niche celebrity society mm. meaning the days of just having three channels and mash gets 20 million viewers is over by yeah. the way i was even i don't even know how i was alive when mash was on but that's my example of <laughs> everybody watch the finale of mash there's a reason it has the record so there are so many options out there it's like a high it's like the interstate yeah and all these cars are going by and so you got to quickly catch one because here comes another here comes another if you build your niche and you find your small audience and you super serve the crap out of them, yeah. that's where the success is going to start coming from because there are a thousand different things to do. That's why people are putting out songs so quick because it goes from one to the other, one to the other, one to the other. If you find your little group of people and you serve them, it's Thanksgiving dinner to them every single night. You mm. give them cranberry sauce and turkey and you serve them like crazy – and you build that niche out right. instead of throwing the big blanket up and hoping yeah. you catch as many as possible. Right. That's not working anymore. Yeah. It's about zeroing in and spreading instead of going, hey, everyone, I hope you like me. Boom. And yeah. I've seen the change happen. Yeah. Even in my – I mean I started as a teenager in the late 90s doing radio. Yeah. It's changed dramatically since then when you would just put out a record and go, everybody love it. It, that's just not what happens. Even yeah. in country music now, it's not. What, it's starting to be niched on the major side of things. Even with, you know, I want to hear uh, traditional country. Right. We, right. we have radio stations that are now breaking apart inside our format. Yeah, which they always used to talk about. I remember the '90s and the late '90s. People started talking that way. And now they do it because now that's people want, on their own. So it's a very niche. If you super serve your small group, that small yeah. group gets a little bit bigger. It's a, this podcast started with 1,000 people listening. Yeah. Now it's like a million. I never thought anybody would listen to this crap. I oh. mean, I love it. I'm, I'm fascinated. Counting, this is a big, I'm counting on my career picking For up. For sure. You can, <laughs> do we talk about hard tickets? You'll be able to go anywhere and just talk. But 
Yeah, this has turned into an entire music theory. I, I, you have wrote so many songs. We didn't even get to song. <laughs> I, well, let's I, talk. I, I have enough time to talk songs. We do. Let we we have like a few minutes. Let's talk some stuff here, because uh, and let's just get right down to it, because uh, I feel like I just got a degree from Hummin University. All right. <laughs> no, I I feel like I just learned something, although. It's so hard for me to follow, and uh, and again, I see I'm seeing a lot of what you're talking about, really through kind of through my son's eyes, and I know Fletcher Foster, his manager, and like um, we're really you know we're really close family friends, and um, and then and you know and we and, and actually the guy that you know is helps finance iconic is Larry Beckwith, and and I love to talk to him you know because they, they you know and they care they care about their yes they care about their artists there's only you know three of them but they. And they're thinking about this stuff all the time, you know. Um, and then it, it's just very, it's an extraordinary time. And again, as a dad, you know, you, you it's not just that I have a, uh, I, I have two dogs in the game, if you would. You know, like I, I'm trying to kind of stay vital uh, or involved in the business. Vital is a separate issue, by the way, in my opinion, you know. But the other thing I'm trying to do is I'm also walk, watching, you know, my son and who I've, you know, make music with sometimes, but also, you know, who I just love and he's trying, you know, I see him going into these waters, the very thing that you're talking about and I'm excited for him, but sometimes I also feel like, oh gosh, it's so tough for artists today. I mean, I think when I was an artist in the nineties, like when I had the couple record deals I had and, you know, you would think about, oh wow, I get to do an interview. That's great. I'm going to, you know, I'll reach a lot of people and I, I see artists today and, you know, if they don't do three four selfies a day and and do you know your your you know uh, twitter feeds and all this other stuff you know the, you're you're trained to do that and of course it makes perfect sense you you kind of have to do that but think about the generation before you that said that about you like i can't believe what they have to do now uh-huh. again we talk about cycles People were saying the same thing about from the sixties. But 70s. I really didn't. We really didn't have to do anything too much during the day. I'm like, I just think you have to be on a. You got to be on your phone. It, it's just you know if to compete and it's to And then the Twitter thing, you know, we, like we got a president who's commenting seven eight times a day. I don't even have Twitter. You know, like I I had Twitter briefly, and then I was like, I can't believe I'm commenting on my own life. I can't believe it. Like that's something is. Separate from President Trump, because I just dropped. You talk about me in, in that way. Go ahead, bring. Okay, bring we can bring. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I find it. That's a separate issue. But the 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 this generation that is filming itself and commenting on itself as they live their lives, you know. And I've done, you know, and I was uh, just just two. I did two weeks in Europe with the CMA, right? I did the songwriter series, and um, I, you know. I took pictures and, you know, Stockholm and, you know, to funky places and sculptures and, and, uh, and Levi, you know, like we would be, we'd be out somewhere and he'd go, Hey dad, okay. I, I, you know, take a picture. Let's, I got to do a shot for, you know, get this out. And I'd be like, okay. So then I'm the cameraman, you know? So I'm like part of the team all of a sudden I'm like doing the shot and then we're checking out and he's like, I like that one. I like, okay, we'll use that one. And I'm thinking, wow. So, so that's sort of the amicable, positive way of looking at it. But the other side is just the pressure for these young people. You know, like, oh my God. But we're it's trained. We're trained. <laughs> it's it's the only thing that I know. Yeah. So to me, it's like if I never had a television, would I miss television? Yeah. I've never not known yeah. that I had to digitally be on the forefront. Yeah. That's always been a constant. Yeah. So to me, it's not weird. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and I hear what you're saying, and I mean, and I get it, and I, I I know, 
I don't think Levi thinks it's weird, you know, and, and, and it's funny too, cause there's a kind of a, there's a fellowship too within there, like the way that you like other people's things, you know, and I do have Facebook and I'm, you know, I definitely liked, I mean, I want to like, if I'll see something, you know, people who put out a record or they've done something or they're playing and their picture or their, their dog or somebody, you know, I, you know, I'm enough a part of, it. I'm not completely out of it, but I'm, I feel a little bit out of it. You know, I, you feel generationally a little bit out of it. <laughs> I think at some point we all should start to feel generationally a little bit out of it. That's probably natural, isn't it? It is, it is, uh, cause I remember like with my mom and dad, you know, that when they would listen to my music and they were huge fans and they were so supportive and when they could travel, they came to everything, you know? And they love music so much, and they made music, you know, and and uh, but they, you know, what they like was the ballads, and <clears throat> I could play Born to Fly or Ready to Run or you know or whatever, and and they would go, that's cool, you know, like yeah, that's yeah, yeah, and I could tell they were like kind of getting it, and then you'd sit down at the piano, and if I get the piano, and I'd play Bless the Broken Road or um, or Over My Shoulder or something, you know, and they would go, yeah, that's it, because. They came from an age of ballads, you know, where the ballad, you know, and all the singers, you'd have a song and the song, you'd have a song and like, you'd have a Burt Bacharach song, for example, you know, why I do Burt, no, that's, I'm thinking of a Karen, uh, but, um, what's a good Burt Bacharach song? Does he sing, raindrops keep falling on my, is that Burt Bacharach? But let's say that, let's take that song. Okay, go ahead. Raindrops keep falling on my head. And you'll have, um... 10 different pop singers like Sinatra will do a version and then you know Karen Carpenter will do a version and then you'll have you know whomever and the the songs you'd have songs like that that just had this breadth and and I just think that was a generation that looked at you know you might call it crooning or um, and so certain kinds of things like rhythmic ideas that were real specific to a particular period of time weren't that I think my I think for my folks a lot of that would just sort of they just wouldn't catch it I've never done this before, but what I want to do in a few months, I want to have you. I've never had anybody back again. Oh, yeah. I want to have you back. Okay. And I I'd love to, to come back. Because for me, this has been it. I, I never know where these are going, but I feel like philosophically, we've mm. talked about a lot of things. Yeah. I just want to run through these songs real quick, and we'll yeah. get to all this yeah. at a later point. So you wrote, first of all, you put out Bless the Broken Road yourself. Which yeah. Well, I didn't put it out. I put it out on an album, and that album also had one of these days, which... But you put the album out. I mean, it was out there for people to consume. Out. Yeah, they could consume it. How did the flats get it? Did every long, long stream me to where you I, I just, to this day, I mean, that that and the song Moving On are my, two of my absolute favorite. The simplicity of the way they did that song was just kills me. You know, a lot of people did the song. You know, Melody Crittenden did it uh, on her Asylum, and she actually put it out as a single. And I died in the 40s, and I thought that was the end of it. And Jeff Hanna and I, you know, we keep pitching it. It got pitched by a lot of people. Tracy Gershon and a, a, a woman by the name of Michelle Berlin at BMG kept put, pitching it. And, and then Jeff and I would pitch the song all the time to different people. And I think, I think, you know, Brooks and Dunn took a stab at it. I believe Winona took a look at it. A lot of people looked at it. And, the, the, you know, in the early on, I used to write a lot with Flats the guys when their first three records you know and I had a number of songs on their albums um, 
And they used to always say to me, oh, God, we love that Bless the Broken Road. Because the thing about Bless the Broken Road is it, in, and this is when I suddenly realized that it was, it was going to have a life of its own, was that, you know, my wife's a minister, okay? And, and then, and I've, you know, and pretty well known, and she does lots of really interesting stuff. She's the founder of Thistle Farms, and, and uh, she actually does more touring than any of us now, by the way. She's far more involved. <laughs> She's gone far more national than, than anyone in the family. But, um, you know, for years and years, I was I was playing weddings. I, I realized, I mean, I, she would do weddings, but I was I can't tell you how many weddings I was doing. And I got an award in the mail for, like, sheet music song of the year. And I realized that we hadn't, without meaning to, we'd pop, we'd dropped right into a nerve. People getting married later. And you're going through a second marriage, third marriage, you know. Or even, you know, I got married when I was you know, 27 years old. You know, I'd had relationships. She'd had relationships, you know, and reclaiming love, what that is, is is something of our time. It's different. It's not what my parents, you know, as we all know, folks would, you know, get married out of high school, certainly get married right out of college. And and that I didn't mean to write that song in that sense, but I realized, oh, damn, we've really hit a vein, you know, Um, and the that song kept getting pitched and my understanding is the flats guys on their last record with the management and production team that they had they did an album called feels like today which i believe i don't know if it's not it's close it's probably now their biggest selling record i would think they were the first song went out a fantastic song feels like today uh, whatever but and that song didn't go like number one or top five even and it was considered a massive you know setback and i understand um because i was out of the country at the time that summer that the that the label was thinking of maybe trashing the record that's what i've been told don't know if that's true it might be apocryphal i'm not sure and i believe the label said let's let's cut two more songs let's try that let's try that bless the broken road you guys said you liked all along because they used to always say oh man we're gonna do that song and they would never do that song and i would you know i'd be like come on guys you know and they would never do the song. And I remember I got back revisiting. My family was living in, uh, my parents at that time living in Botswana where they worked for a long time. And So we, I remember getting back and I remember Michelle Berlin running out of the doors of BMG and she says, they did it. And I'm like, they did what? Who's they and what do they do? She said, they did it and they're going to put it out as a single. And I'm like, what? Bless the broken road. And I remember the first time I heard it, I mean, I literally hair went up in my arms. You know, and you don't, you don't always feel that at all. But it was so pure and beautiful. It just was outstanding. But that's, you know, that's the story that I heard about it. So the Dixie Chicks. I'm going to play a couple of these. The Chicks, yeah. as you call them. <laughs> that one. How about this one? Ready, 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 ready How'd you get with the Chicks? As you called them. I wouldn't call them. Yeah, the Dixie Chicks. Yeah. The Chicks. The Dixie Chicks. They, I mean, I was... I was kind of being let go. I was uh, being let go by Sony, and then they were coming in. So one of my guys, I have two two guys that, that during that period of my life, I had two guys that were really my champions. One was Scott Simon, and the other was Paul Worley. So at one time, Scott and Paul ran Sony, and that's when I got signed. They, you know, one of my friends became record president. So Scott was a great publisher. Of course, he subsequently was a great manager. Has is a manager. RPM, you know, Tim McGraw. And, um, and then, of course, Paul Worley is, is one of the greatest producers that ever worked in this town. And while I was being flushed out, they had moved on and someone else had come in to take over Sony. But they're still my friends. 
And so when the chicks, the Dixie chicks got signed, um, they, uh, that's really how I got set up to write with them because the Dixie chicks told me they knew my record, which although it didn't sell very well, um, it did, we did a weird campaign where instead of putting a single out and then following it with press, we did six months of press giving the album to people. And then we did some, it was really kind of an ass backwards kind of approach. But what it did do is it was like it got me a lot of publicity and promotion for the songs, many of which subsequently went on to get cut. And um, and so I really look at it like it was like the most expensive publishing demo ever, you know, in a weird way, because that's why I got I got to play with them, because if you listen to songs, some of the songs on the record, all in good time, um, they're real roots, banjo, grooves, folk meets soul meets, you know, and that really is what the Dixie Chicks did, only they did it much better and, and in a way that was about to be eaten up by the country. And nobody saw it coming. Like, I never caught a wave before. And the first time I wrote with them, I wrote with Marty, and I met her at Fido's in the village. And she had a few hours in there back, and their first single was out, the Costa song of, I can love you better than that. Right. I can love you, baby, I can love you better. Right. Yeah. And that was when I and I the thing is I knew the Dix Chicks because my cousin was a comptroller in Irvine and she had used to hire them when they were more of a Riders in the Sky you know frills and cowboy hats and they had that other singer so I actually knew who they were right and when I wrote with Marty we were the first time we wrote we wrote Ready to Run first day and I by the way I eventually wrote with all of them but Marty and I wrote many songs they only recorded two but they wrote a lot of songs with her and. Uh, and play it on the record. I'm the, I played guitar on Ready to Run. I like that. Ready, 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 ready Some run. fine guitar playing, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I, I wish I could say I played the banjo on that, because that's really killing <laughs> Now, from... Uh, and I, this is a... We'll do another hour in a few months. Why don't you yeah. come back over to the house, if you don't mind, sometime. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, what we've learned from this is, if you go hang out <laughs> with enough satellite streaming or radio people and take them wine and give them massages they'll play your songs and that's running all that's, that's what you taught us yes that's what yes, 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 yes. but that's you know what that's been happening it's like the 50 you know they, they just walk they used to call it payola in, they they still do yeah it just has to be it's just different everything's different everything's, there's always everything's a thing. different there's always a thing uh i really appreciate the time yeah thank you bobby thank you um, uh, congratulations on everything and um that you've done and and sometime when we do, if we do get to talk again, I I want to ask you some questions. I think that'd be a fantastic one because I won't know the answers. I won't sound near as smart as you, but I love to answer questions. That way, I don't have I to think of the, I don't have to think of the question. <laughs> you're you're good though. Yeah, next time we'll do that. That'd Let's be that'd it. be interesting. Let me interview you a little bit. I just got a couple of things that I was doing some reading about you. Okay, and I, you got some pretty there's some pretty interesting stuff. I just want to ask some questions about. That, I think that's that's fair. <laughs> All right. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you. It, there, there he is. Wow, look at this guy here. Episode 87. That is Marcus Hummel. And uh, he just flew in from Europe and hopped on a plane and came over to the house. So, uh, Levi, if you're listening, shout out, buddy. I'll see you around. And, uh, we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Right,